So welcome to this very special episode of Edge of Leather. Um, Jude and I are today joined by James Kidd. Um, so James, I don't know if you want to introduce yourself. Who are you? Hi, I'm James Kidd. I am a teacher support and partner and guidance teacher in Dumfries currently. Um, having worked in a couple of local authorities as a principal teacher of sport learning, guidance teacher, primary deputy, and various roles. Um, yeah, that's me. Oh, and two children as well. Yes. Absolutely. So we're, we've invited you into our Edu Blether today, and today our kind of focus is going to be around nurture, inclusion, and equity. So huge topics for us to cover in this um, episode of the podcast. So I guess just to tease out a wee bit about kind of what your current role and background is, because I think. We have covered um, pupil support related type topics before, but it's really good to tap into your expertise. Um, obviously, specifically in a secondary sector, but you also mentioned in the primary sector as well, Jude's a primary teacher, so he might be able to tap into a wee bit of a, around that as well. Um, so the kind of first question really, James, is what's your story? What have you learned along the way? What's my story? <clears throat> okay, uh, I think my story goes back to 12, 13 years ago now when I first became a qualified teacher uh, in drama. And very quickly, I became an acting uh, guidance teacher. Uh, I did that for a short while. And then soon after that, I got my principal teacher support for learning role. And I think um, my story is such is kind of this kind of the projection just um went on that i learned to kind of be a very good teacher and then i learned what strategies made very good learning and teaching and i was able to then kind of use those to meet the needs of a wider group of young people than initially i thought possible um and then slowly that just kind of developed on um yeah, I think that's my story. And did you plan for this? Or is this no, accidental? No. no, I didn't plan for this. <laughs> I didn't even plan to be a teacher, really. <laughs> um, that's hard. Uh, but I love it. I absolutely love it. And I think doing that is, I think it was, it was my mum said was in, when I was in nursery school as a nursery kid, oh, the, the nursery teacher said he should be a teacher. He goes around teaching everybody else. Mm. Uh, but I was kind of off being a holiday rep. I was went to drama school, did all that, and then um, it was a family bereavement, came back, realised I needed to kind of get a real job, and then I kind of went into teaching, and I loved it, and I loved the kids, loved the buzz, um, and then I started working with additional support needs children, and those characters that were really tricky to include in the mainstream classroom seemed to flourish. Maybe it was the nature of the subject, um, the relationship, but it kind of just led on from there. Then I got into guidance, so that way I could work with children on a different level. And then, yeah, just kind of widened out, really. Um, oh, did that be? That would be Jude. He never switches his watch off. He's <laughs> got a laptop this time. Come on, we're all oh, doing oh, virtual oh. challenges here. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, then I kind of heavily got into the restorative approaches stuff. That was when I was in Fife. Um, and kind of led a working group within the school there. And that then got me onto the project board at, um, in Perth and Kinross. Then I got involved with the nurture side of things within secondary nurture because the primary role had led me to, as a primary deputy, I had a nurture provision, a targeted nurture provision. Um, but that led to me when I went back to secondary thinking, well, it doesn't kind of marry as well. Um, and then I heard about Education Scotland. They were doing a recent um, big push on secondary nurture, got involved with those, delivered some training across Perth and Kinross. Um, yeah, so that's kind of me-ish. That's a, I think, a really rich and varied story that you have there, and I think I think you're trying to be modest with that, but I think that's, I think you've been on a really interesting journey there to get to the place that you're at the moment, and there's so much that you've said in your story there that I'd like to pick up on. Can I, can I just backtrack a little bit to the the bit that you touched on about the sort of creative pursuit or the creative sphere and how children with additional support needs were maybe interacting more there. Just got, I want to get into nurturing a bit more further into the episode and further into the discussion. But what, what do you think it is about that sort of sense of creativity and that, that atmosphere that brings out the best in children with additional support needs? Um, I don't know, because I think... See, as a practitioner, creative practitioner, in terms of kind of being a drama teacher, I wasn't your typical drama teacher. So it wasn't like everybody come in and, ooh, let's be trees. It was kind of like everyone lines up at the door. You come in, you come in, boy, girl. You sit, boy, girl. You say, sir, for the register. And it was a really structured learning environment. So it was less about, it's almost like it was the pedagogy itself that created the nurturing environment rather than the subject. And I think... Um, although the, the kind of the tools that I could use were a bit more engaging for young people, maybe. So maybe using the lighting, using things like that is is something that they can tap into. Um, but I don't think it was just restricted to that subject as such. I think even when in teaching PSE, the same strategies for a nurturing classroom can. Yeah. But, I think that's a really interesting point, isn't it? Because I think if we, if we think about nurture, or even uh, you were talking about restorative approaches there and I think a lot about the yourself has to be invested in it you know a lot of the teacher's personality and often that's sort of cited as a but I'm just not that type of teacher that's not the type of teacher I am do you know so that so much of it is wrapped up in pedagogy and approaches within the classroom rather than subject specific I think that's Absolutely. a real yeah, and I think as well, I think um, it was often that I, I don't know, I think it was a scary teacher, but you know, children, um, they built relationships with me, but they were relationships where they didn't know anything about me. Mm. I, was, I, was, I was the teacher, and it was a professional relationship, but it was a one of trust, and it was mutual trust, and it was where I had very high expectations of young people, and they, they met those expectations, um, and where they didn't, we stepped outside, we had a chat, we found out what the problem was, and then they met them the next time. So, mm. Yeah. Maybe. No, I think I think it's great. I think there's there's loads to get loads to get out of that. I'm just reflecting on my own practice as you're speaking at the moment, and I think there's just there's so much about that, isn't there? That I think there's a lot of misinterpretations when we come to uh, what, what, means and what yeah, restorative yeah. practice is. Do you agree? Absolutely, absolutely. And I think the difficulty you have as well is a lot of teachers, not a lot of teachers. That's just, that's just a sweeping statement. Sorry. 
Um, but a number of teachers can go too far the other way and feel restorative courses is an easy option. And then they don't realise that actually it doesn't mean you remove consequences. It's not about being a friend. This is about actually putting a consequence in place, agreeing the consequence together about this is the consequence we're going to have and this will be the outcome of that consequence and then moving forward. And actually, I often feel it's about when dealing with a child is this is the situation we're dealing with and you put yourself and the child either side of the problem say how are we going to get the solution to this problem well it's by making sure there's consequence making sure we repair the damage and then we're going to plan forward um so yeah but i think it's really tricky isn't it and i think it's kind of one of those values things well people say it's a values thing but yeah it's interesting there that you commented on the kind of um, how how difficult it is, you know, or actually people rest upon restorative practice or nurturing approaches as a, uh, something that could be easy, you know, it's like I'll take that easy route because it's easier to relate on a human level, but actually it's so hard and quite often they're they're branded as the soft skills, you know, that, that you're interacting with, but actually they're the hardest to master, being able to pick on subtle nuances between what the child's saying and how to de-escalate that situation and move past it is so much harder than just a punitive driven approach. And actually I think it's in that de-escalation where a lot of issues happen within classrooms where that element of control and, and, and some staff can find it quite difficult to let go of that control for mm -hmm. fear of where that will lead but often if the, the most the skilled practitioners you find will let go of that control, but then we'll be able to pull that right back. And I think that's kind of key, isn't it? The other bit though we have to be very careful about, I think we're restorative, is you know, it's not teacher blaming and it's not teacher shaming. And I think as soon as you mention it, what you can get is staff who turn around and go, oh, well, it's my fault, it's a relationship, so it's me. And then you have to say, well, actually, no, it isn't, but it's just about making sure that the situation's right for you and this child, you know, and I think that can be it's it's yeah. quite a it, it's a hot thing, isn't it? It's it can really. Yeah. I totally agree, and I think that point there about um, not teacher blaming, but there's a very fine balance because I find it liberating and empowering to understand that that is within my control to control the situation, you know, and not control a child, but it's my actions and my reactions that will control that. That's empowering, but that can also be misinterpreted. I think as being well, you're the one to blame and it's your fault. So I think that's a really valid point as well. Yeah, thanks for that. Yeah. So James, kind of picking up on some of the other things you mentioned there around, I want to just focus in a bit on nurture, if that's okay. Mm -hmm. So what does nurture mean to you then? <clears throat> what does nurture mean to me? So I think my first ever experience of nurture was in the primary context and it was a nurture room and it was a nurture teacher they had two support assistants. I think um, at the time it was during kind of a really kind of there was a lack of resources in the school due to the rural location in terms of getting staffing. So it, it, while, while it was nurture it also took a lot of other children in, so ESD children, because actually the school didn't have anywhere else to deploy um, kind of support. So that was my first experience and then within the secondary context we set it up a kind of a targeted nurture group um, and I think that's when I realized Ooh, I've got this a wee bit wrong because what I found is we actually set up a really good nurture group um, we use the box or profiles adapted um, to suit the secondary context we make sure everything was kind of targeted there was a reason for children being in there we didn't 
we had kind of time limits, maximum six months, you know, followed all the box hall mm -hmm. and the Marjorie lays out, and that was fine. But what you then had was a situation where you were putting these children who'd kind of rebuilt those relationships back out into mainstream that wasn't a nurturing school. And I think for yeah. me, it's around that implementation of nurture as a whole school ethos, a community ethos, and about, you know, adults not only being nurturing to children and children to adults, but adult to adult and modeling those relationships. And to me, it, it's that huge kind of, um, it's a huge concept. And I think where Glasgow went, and Glasgow went down the whole kind of nurturing city model, which was around that idea of, you know, every single part of education and children's services were nurture trained. And all of their policies are underpinned by the six nurture principles. So they went down the route of, everybody's doing it so anybody who was interacting with a young person did so in a nurturing way um but i do think it needs that leadership and that kind of top kind of leading from the top providing this is what we're going to do what we're doing is underpinned by these nurturing principles therefore anything coming off it is therefore nurture and i think it's again we have to be very careful it's not a soft option it's very much high expectations of young people. Sometimes the children that we're going to be dealing with in that situation are the most, um, can be the most, um, um, I don't want to say challenging young children, but, you know, they can display behaviours that are really quite difficult to see. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it's just making sure that you have to have some people in there who are nurture trained who are able to see that not react to that mm -hmm. continue on and i think sometimes yeah again it's about those high expectations isn't it so really you know the the restorative approaches the nurture training it's all linked together around boundaries clear high expectations it's very yeah and very high structure yeah um, and well planned and high support as well for young yeah. people and obviously you've mentioned the primary and the secondary so what do you think are the biggest barriers? Obviously, primary and secondary is quite different. I'm thinking probably scale in terms of the number of staff you might have to get on board, but also the number of young people and that consistency. Is that a fair thing to say across a secondary school? I would say so. I think it's absolutely around that. I think it's also difficulties around um, communication, maybe, within a secondary context, due to the fact of that many members of staff across all those subject areas say 17 teachers in a week mm -hmm. um i think but again i think within a primary setting you also have your difficulties yeah if you have a child in a classroom with one teacher and the mix isn't right and for whatever reason the, the environment isn't right for that young person um that can be really challenging i think as well around ident uh, assessment and assessment of need can be really tricky mm -hmm. within a secondary context i mean when you're in a secondary context, you have a number of learning environments and situations to look across to see whether the behaviours are presenting in a lot of different learning environments. Whereas within a um, primary context, it, it, apart from any peripatetics in which can have a wee kind of difference, it tends to be in the same classroom environment, the same behaviours. Mm -hmm. um, so I think there's, there's issues around assessment as well as communication and definitely consistency. And you um, mentioned the importance of leadership as well. Presumably you can't do this unless you have the senior leadership team, the middle leadership team, teachers all on board, parents, young people, everyone's got to be pulling in the same direction here. 
Absolutely. And they also have to be kind of valuing each other's professional skills and abilities. I think sometimes the worst thing you can see is when you're dealing with a really high kind of high end situation that could end either way. And um, for example, children with knives and you're dealing with that situation and I'll be everybody wants to help. Sometimes that can be the worst thing that could ever happen is for somebody else to come in and try and help. Mm-hmm. But it's about, I think, as a team working together to ensure that you have a language, you have a script, you have protocols in place for these situations and these high-end situations about how we're going to deal with those. Um, you know, we had in our last school was, you know, I'm here if you need me or just give me a shout if you need help. Mm-hmm. And then you would walk away from a situation and you would trust that member of staff to deal with it. Mm-hmm. And I think you've, I've been in some where, in some schools where Albion, they've had a lot of different issues going on and everybody jumps in and it can heighten everything and it makes it yeah it just escalates it doesn't it and makes the situation far worse than it needs to be yeah and communication is key absolutely key yeah i wonder can i make a, a deliberately sort of flipping point here and and suggest that we're, we're all like we're, we're saying there's a huge amount of training and resource that goes into becoming a nurturing school and the six principles of nurture and everything that you've talked about there about pre-planned scripts and training and SLT having to buy in. So what if if, if we say we're not buying into that, are we saying that we're a non-nurturing school? That we are not wanting to believe in nurture? Like what are, like I think there is there a semantics problem here in that actually why is this optional? Why is this not something that's just everywhere like that's just omnipresent i don't understand why it's not something that everyone does me neither but i think do you know if we look back at marjorie boxwell and the establishment of nurture which was down in england and the way it was run there is a specific way that nurture has to be delivered mm. and the, the principles the the target support everything is really quite specific to become what they would class as a nurturing school mm-hmm. But again, I think because it, it's values and because it's hearts and because it's minds, you know, you, you can't just say, well, I'm going to cross Scotland. Every single school suddenly going to become nurturing because yeah. actually it's context specific. And that thing, sorry, James, to interrupt. I think that values is so important. You said oh, it was supposed to be values. I think that was something you said earlier on. I think, you know, every teacher every parent, every young person comes to school with a different set of values, but particularly teachers, you know, we're dealing with with cultures, schools that haven't changed in 10, 15, 20 years, schools that still don't recognise that type of culture that we're looking for around inclusion and nurture. So until, you know, that we're, we're really kind of going through a long process to get that actually in place and it's kind of from the microcosm to the macrocosm isn't it because it's like mm-hmm. it's not only classrooms that struggle it's in schools but also local authorities values yeah then mm-hmm. you know it's it's a nationwide thing it's huge um, so and i think that's part of the challenge is that shared vision and what it is that we value um because you know it's not that long ago that education looked quite different it was quite um managerialism it was quite um hierarchical and you could argue there's elements of that still there just now it's quite punitive um i think it was um the when adults change everything changes there's an interesting comparison to prisons in terms of what they actually do in terms of um you know you've got rules and if you break the rules rather than learning you're punished so it's, it's quite interesting that that's the culture we're in 
um, in some places. But I think that's part of the challenge that we have to to get across. I think for me, one of the other things is not seeing it as an add-on as well. Like it can't just be, oh, let's just do nurture training or let's do restorative approaches as just a wee project that someone takes forward. It's got to be involved in everything we're doing. And it has to be very strategic. It's really hard, isn't it? Yeah, it has to be very strategically done because the other bit is if you part implement it within an authority, that part implementation, if it fails, which likely will if it's not done properly, Mm-hmm. then you know that then casts doubt and that then gets people talking and yeah so it has to be done in a way that's very strategic mm-hmm. and actually there's a readiness for it mm-hmm. absolutely but i think as well what people need and i think maybe it is the attainment agenda or the fear of you know we haven't got time we need to focus on results in the secondary school and maybe it's the lack of understanding that actually the two are interlinked mm-hmm. and if you meet the needs and nurturing needs of young people results will improve if your curriculum is right i wonder if we can dig into that in a bit more detail because i think that is the crux of it isn't it it's that i mean we manage what we measure we're wanting to get ourselves further forward and be able to put it on a spreadsheet but this doesn't neatly fit into that because actually the impact of a nurturing uh, approach at primary one might not be seen until third year do you know and how do you track that forward so so can, can you just talk in your experience there about how you um, sort of navigate that sort of managerial approach to that is is how we're kind of viewing it I suppose how do we how do we deal with that in a tracking and monitoring focused world again yeah it's it's a very tricky one to manage but you know if you've got a young person who is accessing nurture then there is going to be an identified additional support need there um, whether that be attachment early trauma whatever the need is there will be an identified need so it's making sure that you know you're aware of who that child is going through the school you have appropriate transition arrangements in place with the secondary school to make sure that information is passed on if they're accessing nurture there's going to be a box hold on a point of entry so you're going to be box holding the young person you're going to be gathering data so you're going to be gathering data from classroom teachers in terms of attainment attendance punctuality and basically, that's what you're tracking all the way through. You have regular reviews through your voxel. So, you know, your voxel gives you information around, you know, these are the areas where they need to be worked. This is what you need to be working on. And actually, what they do very well is they also give you these are the things you could be doing to work on those, which is quite helpful. Um, and then you track it again. And you continue to do that. And you have to do that along with really close communication with your classroom teachers and really close communication with, whether it be your support teachers from the secondary context to see what's the attendance like, what's the behaviour like, and that's how you do it. It's like, that's the quantitative side of the thing, but it's also, you know, the discussions with parents, the discussions with the child, the discussions with classroom teachers and gathering that data. Um, it's like anything, though, isn't it? I suppose, you, is, it, is it nurture? Is it parents? Is it the right teacher? Is it the fact that, you know, if you're trying to make an argument, you can make anything fit, I suppose. So it's yeah, it's really complex and layered, isn't it? And I think that's part of because it's not a neat resource that you can buy and turn to page yeah. twenty and your children will all start behaving and having yeah. positive outcomes. It's no, not it's not like it's not science. It's a social science. And within yeah. social science, it's so difficult to quantify things and it's so difficult to say this is it, you can't pinpoint. But what you can do is narrow it down. And you can narrow it down to the point where you can see, well, actually, this child has had interventions every single year throughout his schooling, and this is the outcome. So th- those interventions have to have had an impact. 
because they'll have been regularly reviewed and he'll, you know, it, it, yeah. So. And I guess just picking up on what Jude mentioned there about the attainment-driven culture we're in, reading just in the last couple of days in the newspaper about the number of pupil support teachers reducing across Scotland quite significantly, and also taken into the context of, I think, late last year, that there was £15 million by the Scottish Government investing in pupil support because it's recognised the impact it has on attainment. But are we seeing that impact? Do we see that teachers, do we see that schools value pupil support or support for learning areas or inclusion, whatever you're calling it today, James? (laughs) (laughs) Um, It's it's really tricky, isn't it? I think um, you have to be... The job I used to have was a very difficult job in terms of you weren't the most liked person because you were the one who challenged. Mm-hmm. You're the one who challenged staff and said, well, actually, you know, or is it this or is it that? Um, it can be very, teaching's a really stressful job, do you know, and you can have a day where it all goes horrifically wrong and Bob's just really got to you. And you know what it is? It's the lack of support. I just need support with that kid and it all blows. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, support gets it in the neck. Yeah. Um, and I think, do you know, it is really difficult, but I think ultimately, it's a job that the school wouldn't cope without it. Mm-hmm. I think increasingly, though, what we are having to do is become a lot more strategic in terms of how we deploy support. I think there has to be a stage approach to intervention. I think what we can't be doing is sticking faster in young people with PSAs left, right and centre and just saying that's it. You know, we have professionals in the classroom who are teachers who need to be well informed on the needs of young people. They need to have updated strategies based on what has been said by CALMS. What is, what is the strategy the Congress has given us and need to be going into the classroom to allow us to meet this child's needs? And I think it has to be regularly reviewed. If there are any concerns around that not working, you know, these strategies aren't working, then we go back around the table with Congress and we say, Congress, you know, these strategies aren't working. What do you suggest? Um, it, it needs to be a really kind of measured approach to meeting needs because what you can get across, across Scotland actually is a lack of consistency in what the models are for administering support and um, you've worked in three different authorities in scotland is that right yeah i had to think there yes. <laughs> three different authorities um but again they all ultimately look at the legalities of them they all have the same type of kind of they have the same data sets in terms of child's plans and all that type yeah. of thing but they are very different models that run and actually again, about that managerial bit when you go into schools, there are very different perceptions of or interpretations of policy that are then implemented in each school. Mm-hmm. And in one school, what I have found being a secondary kind of, oh, what am I today? Curriculum leader inclusion? I don't know. <laughs> a secondary guy. Um, you know, I did all the transition stuff. So the best thing about it is all the schools I've written, one, two, three, four, four or five schools, I've then gone out to seven to 12 different primary schools within that. And I think I've got a really good picture of kind of how it works. Um, But within a certain primary school, depending on the context of that primary school, the staff, what makes it a primary school, what what is kind of a child and how they present and how it's seen can be very different to a primary school, which is just 20 minutes along the road. Mm -hmm. And actually the support that they have in place could massively differ from the support that's in place in another primary school. And that tells me that the additional support needs in terms of meeting it is driven not only by 
the needs of the child, but also the context in which they're in. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I think that needs to be unpicked a wee bit to find out, you know, maybe it's less about changing the child and more about changing the learning environment and mm-hmm. context. And that's a really interesting point, and I want to bring Jude in here and see what face itching to get a word in. Obviously, Jude, primary is your area. What's yeah. your reflection on what James has just said? I, I think I think that's very very true. I think I've um, worked in quite quick succession across three different primary schools, um, sort of different sizes, different areas of the city. And again, I would say our sort of universal understanding of what we mean by support isn't something that you can just sort of write down and say well this child fits into that category therefore is is kind of needs this level of support and I think we need to change the models of how schools get support in terms of how they can um, kind of build capacity of, of the staff within their schools and how they can get the staff to a place <coughs> A, a more universal understanding of, of, of need and, and what best resources are and what best approaches are. I would say that there's, there's, and again, just anecdotally, <laughs> there's, there is often a, a, a breakdown and I know it's one of the sort of nurturing principles, but transitioning between primary school to high school and in just whatever capacity is, and this is by no means a slight on my uh, esteemed high school colleagues but just when you're with a child all the time and you meet parent at the gate all the time you have a different relationship so I feel that we're kind of placed slightly differently which would maybe explain why there's sometimes a, a disparity between levels of support or even what we mean by what level of support we give I mean do you see that kind of between high school and primary school is that something that's quite stark that you noticed? I, I would say, um, if I can just pitch in here, James, before you come in, obviously, if you look at a... He's a, going there, whether you like it right, or not. Right. <laughs> but if you look at from primary, you know, we go from, if the parents need support, they generally are contacting the head teacher and they get the head teacher parents to, don't they? Straight away, almost. That's generally it. No, I wouldn't say so. Again, just context specific. Maybe I mean. it's related to context. Okay, class teacher, if there's a problem, it's the the head teacher. So there's a lot more ease of access, I guess, is what I'm trying to say in terms of to to the school because the parents are collecting their child, they're dropping them off every day. So the accessibility of the head teacher, the deputy, the teachers is much more um, <coughs> on a daily basis. Yeah. And you compare that to a secondary school where really your only accessibility and as much as we try to be as open and as much as possible, you're limited to parents' evenings and you contact when there's a problem. You know, so I think, and that's me simplifying it <laughs> massively, but that's the way I see it, that actually we turn it from a relationship with the primary school where on a daily basis it will be pleasantries, things that are going well, chatting away, dealing with problems as and when they arrive in a really proactive way. Whereas our secondary model is with our parents, is that they get in touch when there's a problem. And that relationship starts off on a negative from the get-go because we don't have as many opportunities for those conversations and those chats. What do you think? 
Yeah. Yeah, I would say that. I would say that. I think in terms of additional support needs parents, where kind of the needs already identified, they're already building relationships with the support teachers mm-hmm. and the principal teachers of support. So there is that step. Often when it gets to the level of the head teacher, you know, that's normally when, you know, authorities are becoming involved. And it's normally a breakdown of trust. Mm-hmm. And I think the, some of the worst situations I've ever been or ever seen is where a parent is given a child with additional support needs who they have loved and nurtured from day dot all the way through. And they've done absolutely everything within their power to make sure that they get it right for this kid. And they know that child absolutely inside out because they've lived it and they've lived that support need, they've lived the identification. Do you know what it's, and that have that absolute passion is where they've gone into a school, but the school knows better. Mm-hmm. And I think that, that unless you have that absolute link in terms of that relationship and that trust with that parent, you will never meet the needs of that child, mm-hmm. no matter how hard you try. And I think in terms of primary transition, I do think there needs to be more work around that. I think the time that we can allocate to that in terms of a secondary context is limited due to the nature of the secondary role as as a secondary teacher or a support person. You give so much, but you can never, I don't know if you'd ever be able to give the level that would actually be needed for some young people, even when you start your transition in P6. And I've been for P6 meetings, Mm -hmm. you know, I've scheduled it. I'm going to come in once every couple of weeks and I'm going to meet this. It's still not. I've seen this child from nine to three every single day. Yeah. But what I have seen work beautifully is where the primaries have gone, do you know what it is? This PSA is going to come with this child because this PSA knows this child. Now, that was in a three to 18 school. So that was easy logistically to manage that because it was then just a swapping of staff. Um, but it's just, it. yeah, I think transition is one of those, so it's always going to be tricky. And, and actually, sometimes it's about you have to sup it and see because primary and secondary are so different that actually what presents in a primary context may not present in a secondary. And sometimes my job, yeah. Sorry. I just think that that's a really good point. And I think that is always going to be an issue, isn't it? And it's almost one of these truisms that we now almost just throw away as if, yeah, but transition's hard. And oh, yeah, it's harder to get kind of contact with teachers at high school because of the structure of things. And I think. If, if any time for us to sit and rethink, what does this look like? What is this going to be? What's the best model of this? Like we can, we've, we've got to a point at the moment where transition is out. We've no idea what that looks like just now in terms of when we're going to be back, what's going to happen. Is this not the time for us to be sitting down saying, right, what would what would it look like if we were to redesign it completely? How would we, how would we fit transition in? in a model that that best served nurturing principles because it's not just for the the children with additional support needs that we've that have kind of dominated this discussion this evening actually as we've said right at the start is that the nurturing principles benefit the whole school and benefit every child so what could we do let's kind of view transitions but that we could have that kind of thought experiment with loads of different parts of it but transitions just now what, what how, how could we make that better Do you know, I think transitions is part of life. And I think, and I, and I want to say in terms of the ESN children, you know, for those children, absolutely transition is a lot more, okay? Because of the nature of their need, they have difficulties with transition, you know? But I think what we have to be really careful about, really careful, is that we're setting children up for a world that sorts its problems out before it faces them. And that really bothers me, actually, because I think children need to build resilience. Children need to go through a situation and think, 
oh god, this is really hard. I remember when I moved from primary to secondary, there was nothing. You just ended up dumped there in the morning. That was it, you know. And I'm all right. <clears throat> but I think we need to just be really careful that we don't overdo it and we don't overthink it. And we just realise that what we have to do is have the systems in place to ensure that when they are finding things tricky, they have somebody to go to, somebody who they know and somebody who will look out for them. And I think, you know, that's, we have to be realistic about what we can do and what we should do. We can't fix a problem unless we know what it is because children present so differently. Like, yeah. You know? James, I just want to pick up on that because obviously I think we were coming from the same approach here around planning for young people. You've mentioned that a few times around identifying needs and meeting the needs where possible. How important is that? Because obviously, again, we're talking about different expectations. <laughs> uh, different oh expectations in terms of different authorities and their approaches to supporting young people and obviously you'll have seen like I have situations where support is based on a very reactive model and just kind of throw everything at it and you said that sometimes that can make situations worse and you're not actually meeting the need you don't even know what the need is because you're not actually that's not how you're set up to systems where probably they're so far the other way that you can't then be reactive so there has to be a happy balance I think we, we accept that but how important is that kind of the import the planning element of it? I think it's it's key, and it, it just it's one of those things that maybe it's my values, and maybe yeah, it's absolutely key. I think it's about the identification of needs appropriately. I think you can see too many times where we we Johnny down there, oh he's got SEBD, you know him down there, he's, he's SEBD. Oh is he right? Okay, and has that been is that diagnosed or oh no, well he was SEBD in primary. The primary teacher said, oh was he right? Okay. And I think it's about that, you know, you check the CPRs, you go through, you look for the evidence. You know, you don't just label kids because that will help it fit the model to then get the support that you need. You do it based on how the, the actual child. Um, it's about identifying what is a factor creating additional support and therefore what do I put in place to address that need. Um, and it's just making sure that there's regular reviews, but planning is at the heart of it. And it's planning with the family, with the parents, with the child, taking in view all the staff, all the other agencies, you know, it's a robust plan for a young person. And then sometimes it's saying, you know, maybe it isn't the plan, maybe it's just me, maybe I need to reflect on how I'm working with this kid, you know, and, and sometimes it's having that difficult conversation and saying, you know, and maybe it's not the child that's wrong here, maybe it's the environment or something else. Um, but, you know, it, it's, it is about, it's, it's planning and it's making sure that your plan is positive that it's enjoyable. So I've been in some kind of planning meetings and CSPs where you have parents in absolute tears and the teachers are getting all offended and all that, you know, but the best CSP I've ever been in, you know, it was, let's have coffee, let's have cake, let's sit around biscuits, let's put the paperwork in front of us, you know, what's going well? Come on, let's talk about that. Okay, what could be better then? And how do we make it better? What we're gonna to do together as a team to get it right for your child? And I think, Ultimately, it's that, again, forming of relationships and trust through the planning meeting, but also then having something that you can go back and review. Um, so and I think the planning is important, but I think the other thing that you captured there is around when others aren't buying into it and the importance of having the confidence and the courage to challenge things. So to challenge 
parents, to challenge staff around their views and attitudes. Yeah. Yeah. But it's doing it in a way where you still maintain trust and keep the relationships. And and I think you do that through putting Johnny in the centre. And, you know, it's like going back to that restorative thing at the beginning when you're working with young people. Mm-hmm. You put the situation, the problem, and we deal with this problem like coaching, do you know? So, yeah. I think the the way that you, you spoke about the, the planning process there and that enjoyable all stakeholders having coffee and cake, that sounds wonderful. I'm going to bring coffee and cake to the next child planning meeting that I have. But I think that's, that is the, the sort of ideal model. But I'm, I suppose back to the point that you made earlier again about it not being a, a blaming the teacher game. And I think it's totally valid to, to suggest actually there needs to be a bit of kind of reflection about everybody around the table, parents thinking, right, have I got the environment right at home? Am I bringing the child in in the right frame of mind? Have I got the right setup in the classroom? Have I engaged with as many professionals to make sure the environment's there? There's a huge amount of reflection that happens. But is there, and I suppose maybe it's worth us just turning to that point because uh, it's quite an often heard thing now, or uh, people that are maybe not in favour of inclusion or it's a kind of throwaway thing, inclusion doesn't work. It's not working actually. These children need to be in specialist provision or there's a kind of hunt for a quick fix to things. What is, what's that bred from? Where's that coming from? Is it, I don't know, what, what's your take on that? Um, again, I think teaching is a very stressful job and I think it's a really, you know, you spend your life working really hard to be really skilled at your craft. And then you meet a kid that knocks it and you think, oh, hang on a minute, something's not right here. Can't... And that defensiveness comes in. And, you know, I think it must come from that. And, <clears throat> you know, inclusion can work. It is work. I've seen it work. You know, it works. But it's about the appropriate stage of intervention. It's about ensuring you've got a curriculum that's inclusive. It's about ensuring the learning and teaching is inclusive. And then it's getting the support right. But again, it's about that. It's making sure the child is on the right stage of intervention as well. What? Where it really goes wrong, I think, is when you have a wee boy who is really not coping and it can come back to the fact that, you know, he was identified as dyslexic back in P2, P3 or whenever it was. He's never been picked up. His needs have never been met. And then he's suddenly not coping. And then the next thing you know, right, we're getting in touch with the local authority because we want to offsite provision because his behaviour is off the wall. Um, so I think, you know, inclusion is scary. Inclusion can be scary if you allow it to be scary if you allow it to take control. But I think if you actually say, no, this isn't as scary as I think, then you know it can work. But I think we have to go back to the, the role of the support teacher because I think what we need to be very careful of, the support teacher isn't just there to support kids. You know, They have five roles as a support, support teacher. It's the identification and assessment, it's consultation, it's providing professional development, providing twilight sessions, building capacity within your staff to meet the needs of young people. And if all that stuff is happening and working, then inclusion becomes easier. If that isn't happening, and if those CPD events aren't going on, those twilight sessions, and staff aren't getting the training that they need, then it does become tricky for staff to deal with Johnny. Do you know? Mm. Oh. Yeah, it's a really great answer. Thank you very much. I think that's, that's exactly it, isn't it? Because, and, and I think I might just take a clipping of that answer for anyone else that says no inclusion doesn't work because I think that's it we've all seen examples where it fails yeah. but 
it's not it's not inclusion that's failing, is it? It's it's all these other kind of things that if if it's a house of cards, it's going to fall down. But actually, if it's built out of stronger, more robust stuff, uh, which it can be, and we've all seen examples of wonderful examples of union practice. And I think as well, there's got to be a willingness there to make it succeed as well. You've got to have that positive approach to it. You've got to hope and also put in place. I think James spoke about that before, the strategy. Like You can't just go, oh, we want to be an inclusive school and hope it happens. You've got to actually invest in your professional learning, put your staff in place, but also have those robust plans, have those challenging conversations, all of that together makes mm-hmm. an inclusive school, doesn't it? It is. And it's also, in the secondary context, the beauty you have is you'll have your current strategies, you'll have all that going on, but you know that Mrs. Smith down in home economics, this kid goes amazing in this class. What's going on and what is she doing? And sharing those practices with all of the teachers and having those team around the child meetings, bring the teachers together to discuss strategies that are working for young people. I think that's also something that's kind of we have within our gift that we need to be using a bit more of. But, you know, mm-hmm. catch them getting it right and catch them getting it good. Getting it good? Ha! Coin that phrase. So, James, the last kind of theme that I want us to talk about is a tiny theme. Okay. The theme of equity. <laughs> Just that, a was, that wasn't on my list, Mr. Bean. Was it not? <laughs> I like to keep you on your toes, though. Um, so equity of opportunity, obviously a, a, a very important um, topic, something again driving into your values, something I know that you hold really close around equity for young people and for staff as well. Mm-hmm. My question to you is, are we providing equity at the moment? For everybody. For young people, for young people, schools, and is here's controversially just to get you thinking. <laughs> is our PEF money just a sticking plaster? Oh, don't start me with PEF money. Well, I do want to start. You know, I want to review. I think. Do you know? I I, I um. I think absolutely. Oh gosh, I'll be very careful here. Um, you know, pol- I need to take politics out of my head. Politics just needs to step aside because yeah. sometimes they throw money at things without actually understanding a problem. Um, yeah. And I think actually money doesn't always fix things. Um, and, and also how that money is, you know, distributed um, and then how it's then used is very different again, depending on the context that's landed in depending mm-hmm. on the leadership, depending on where they see the issue. And yeah. also, you know, let's be honest, people can spin and people can spin a yarn about this money's getting used for this and this is what it's going to do. And then they'll spin the results to fit. Do I think we are being, you know, I think no, nobody comes into teaching not wanting to make a difference. And I've never met a member of staff within my entire 12, 13 years of doing this job who didn't come into teaching wanting to support young people and get them to achieve the best. I've never seen it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm really grateful for that. And I think, you know, teachers can get it right for young people. Um, oh, it's just, it's whether, it's whether we are focusing on a bottom 
and everybody's gear on the bottom. And then there's times where everyone's gear on the top. And I often think it's better just to, to, to deal with it all. And I think... So you're suggesting, I'm going to help you out here, are okay. you suggesting that we're focusing on a kind of deficit model, like rather than actually including everyone? Like, are, you, are we trying to highlight a problem and try and just fix that? Whereas actually, we should be looking at it universally and say, okay, if there's a, if there's a problem, <laughs> if there's a problem with funding in terms of supporting young people, then we should yeah. just be funding schools appropriately rather than... Absolutely putting a wee stick in plaster and saying here's what we want to target at this group of young people whereas actually everyone and would actually, benefit and yeah and actually the bit that really bugged me is you can have children who are within that demographic who do not have an additional support need, who are presenting exceptionally well and who are doing fine in school but I've got wee Johnny who's an SIM dent eight or nine who is having a horrific time isn't managing anything but there's no funding there yeah because actually all the money's on these kids and I think that's again that's not getting it right for the individual children that is about kind of seeing right SMD one and two. That's where we want to focus, and that is not right. And I think again, that to me serves a political agenda. And I don't yeah. know if I'm saying that. No, but I don't think you can remove politics from it. It's a political, it's a political tool. It's a political uh, resource that's been given to schools, just as increasing funding for schools would be a political decision. I don't think we, I don't think we can remove politics from it. And I think. There's an element there where the, at least I suppose the politics is recognising that it's it's a cry and shame that there is such an attainment gap in a developed country like Scotland and, and the, the chances of the children who are, I mean, you can't remove uh, sort of children's um, upbringing and how much money they have from their academic achievement. I think that's, you can't avoid that. Whether we're going about it in the right way, I I don't I I, I don't think we are. <clears throat> but I don't I don't I don't think it serves a good purpose to try and remove the politics from it because actually we need to interrogate the politics of that to say why is that not happening? Why aren't schools cathedrals that have everybody who is all the resources that we can imagine in the world and all the things that we want for all the things that we've talked about tonight? Or we could just fund schools appropriately. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, that's something we've spoken about before, Jude, is around funding, but also the priorities, because the priorities changing all the time to suit a political agenda. Mm -hmm. And I think actually how much of it is just a political agenda and how much of it is meeting the needs of your own school and your own young people. And I think, you know, the empowerment agenda for me, when we get that right, is when schools are able to dictate and decide what they want to do in their school. And it might look quite different, but the outcomes are comparable. They're not, you know, there's not a postcode lottery, whereas at the moment we have, in some aspects, we have a complete postcode lottery. Because how, as you said, James, around how people interpret a policy, how people, you know, senior leadership teams, local authorities, how people actually look at it and say, do you know what, this is what I value here. Until we crack that, and that, for me, that comes back to leadership. That is one of the most important um, things that we need to get right for us to, to ensure equity for young people. Yeah, I agree. I couldn't, I couldn't agree more. I think John Swinney was saying that 
uh, he wants to get to a place where your best school is your local one without it just being that postcode lottery it should just be that the school that's on your doorstep there, there's a not not that every school's the same but in terms of equity and in terms of academic pursuit and everything that comes with that the school that's on your doorstep should be the best one that you should go to whereas it, it can be at the moment and it, it, I, I don't know why it's not but I think it totally points to the the equity issue in the fact that we, we, I, I think it's I think the reason we're all finding this difficult to answer is because actually we're we're understanding that there is a failure here and then we can't we can't get past that until we fully interrogated what the failing is do you know what? it's it really see i'm all for rural schools and I, I was working in the highlands of well Perth islands um and you know rural schools are amazing and they do really work and again councils look at that funding stream and say you know we've got too many schools so let's kind of start bringing those schools into one school and things which to me brings its own issues but i think the amount of schools that we have within scotland you know trying to get excellent leadership in every single one of them is really hard yeah and i think sometimes it's about again it's like being in the secondary context with your teachers and trying to get consistency across all your teaching staff you're trying to get consistency and leadership across your entire leadership teams across all of scotland that can be really difficult um because there's so many of them and you know i'm not saying that they should go to the whole kind of one head teacher for five or six different schools, but you know, maybe that will kind of, like look at the faculty system in secondary context, where you move to a faculty head who understood pedagogy over subject and what good learning and teaching was. I mean, that went down like a lead balloon, but actually I think on the flip side of it, it actually made complete sense because you had a lot of principal teachers who really knew the subject, but in terms of the quality of learning and teaching and understanding learning and teaching, that understanding wasn't there. And maybe it's the same around that leadership thing. Maybe you need leaders who, who know kind of what really good leadership is. Maybe. So James, I think you've kind of brought us nicely towards the end of Have I? this episode. Although you're not off the hook yet, I've got a couple more questions for you. All right, yeah. So I'm just looking for a reflection at the moment from you on some sort of professional learning that you've engaged in recently that you would recommend to other people? Um, maybe a book, a website, um, maybe you've um, attended a course. I know you're quite heavily into um, studying and you've just um, embarked on a new course, is that correct? Oh, I have, yes. Yeah. So my doctorate starts, the educational doctorate at Strathclyde starts in October. So I'm really looking forward to that. I'm a bit of a kind of a, I get told off, I get secret deliveries to schools so nobody at home knows of all these different books. So I've like got huge rafts of these books hidden everywhere in the house. But the recent one I'm reading, and, and I think it's more tailored towards my doctorate. And it's really quite, it's nice. It's called Exploring um, Professionalism by Brian Cunningham. And it basically looks at the idea of what is a profession and what is professionalism and the origin. But there's lots of different papers on that topic. Um, and I'm really enjoying that just now. So, yeah, there it is. Fantastic. Yeah. It has been an absolute pleasure to for you to join us on this Edgy Blether episode. I've actually really enjoyed it. Good. Thank you. Seriously, though, James, it's been a real pleasure and I'm so pleased that you were able to join us so thanks so much for that